Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. I'm going to start a new uh, series, a little uh, mini-series here in summer, like I always do. And uh, often in summer I like to do a character study. I was starting to plan for a character study for this summer, and I just wasn't getting anywhere with it. And it's really nice sometimes to be married. Actually, it's married good all the time to be married. Sorry, babe. But, uh, um, but uh, sometimes it has benefits even from my work here. So I, on Thursday morning, I just wasn't getting anywhere with this series that I was going to do. And, and LaDonna all of a sudden sent me an email. And she said, I was just praying for you and, and uh, just sense this one passage, Psalm 96 and, and whatever. Like, no pressure, that kind of thing. So I immediately was like, oh, maybe this is, you know, this is like a lifeline. Thank you, Lord. I went to the prayer room. I looked through it and immediately... Uh, a message just, just came out, and I think, so I think that God's in it. And so I'm going to do a little mini-series of the Psalms this summer. And we're just going to pick different Psalms. You ask me, which Psalms are you going to pick? I have no idea next week. I just know this week. Um, this week we're going to do Psalm 96 and calling it the heart of worship. Uh, there may be a theme of worship that runs through all, you know, five weeks or whatever. Um, maybe not. We'll, we'll see. I don't know what Psalm I'm going to do next week. But this week, today, we're going to do Psalm chapter 96. I've never done a series on the Psalms. Uh, I don't even, I can't even remember if I've ever preached a message just on a, on a Psalm. But uh, that's what we're going to do this summer. So I'm going to read it to you. Has the offering plates gone around already? I think so, mostly. All right. Um, we'll get started then. And Psalm 96. I'll just read uh, eight of the verses here. I'm going to skip a few just because it gets a bit long. But uh, Psalm 96 is this. So sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. I'm going to skip ahead just a few verses to verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Psalms and we thank you for your word. This week I, I just meditated much, Father, on your word. It keeps us on the straight and narrow. When everybody, when the world around us is clamoring against us and, and feeding us lies, Lord Jesus, your word keeps us on the true and narrow. And Father, as we go through Psalm 96, I pray in the heart of worship, Lord, I pray that true worship would begin to spring up in our hearts and in this church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Verse 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. King David wrote this psalm, and he says, all the earth needs to sing to the Lord. All the earth needs to worship. Now, I know some of this, these points at the beginning are going to be pretty obvious, but sometimes it's the most obvious ones that are the most important that we need to go over again and again. But I think sometimes some of us, and I won't mention names or certain categories of, of people, men in their 40s and 50s maybe, but um, Sometimes I think we subconsciously, I heard someone say, hey there. Um, sometimes I think some of us get this kind of subconscious idea that worship is for some people and not everyone. Worship is for young people. Worship is for 
passionate people. Worship is for musical people or artsy people or whatever. But I'm just one of those people maybe that I just like to slip into the service. And of course, we know that there's much more to worship than just singing in a service. But certainly singing is a big part of it as we see here. Um, but we think, you know, I'm just going to, I just need to get you know, the worship part. That's sort of just the intro. That's not really the most important part. I just want to kind of slip in and just catch the message. And for many Christians today, Christianity has become about listening to messages as if knowing things about the Bible and about God is the point of our Christianity. But here we see David says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Worship is for everyone. Worship is a core reason why we were made. Nowhere in the Psalms or in the Bible will you find a verse that says, sit and listen to messages all the earth. Okay? Now, before we go too far, I'm preaching right now and I would like you to all stay. So I'm not against teaching. We're not against preaching, okay? But the point is, you and I weren't made for listening to messages. That's part of, I mean, teaching is important. It's certainly in the, in the Bible. It's certainly important what the church does because it keeps us on that path of following God and what we're supposed to be doing, all that sort of stuff. But you weren't made to listen to messages. One of the primary purposes for which you and I were made, regardless of whether you feel like you're gifted in music or whether you feel like a musical or passionate person, you were made to worship God. And so when Jesus returns, you know, I think it's just so important, and, and Pastor Ray, he's there on uh, study break right now, but, and he said this just a couple of weeks ago again, but when Jesus returns, I'm going to tell you something, there isn't going to be a single person on earth that's just going to stand there and go like this. Okay, when are we getting to the message? There's not going to be a single person. I don't care how unemotional, how rock solid, how proud you are of how rock solid you are, and confident of just, you know, I'm just like this. When you see Jesus, when the world sees Jesus, part of the world will fall on their knees in terror, and everybody else is going to be in jubilation and shouting and worship. Nobody is going to do this. Because he's actually just that amazing. So David says, sing to, the sing to the Lord, worship all the earth. You know, it kind of reminds me of a story. I, I just got to share something with you, because I think, again, we have to get beyond worship is just for a few. You and I were actually biologically wired for worship. Whether you feel that woundedness, lies, different things kind of sometimes crust over that so we don't feel like worshiping or maybe we don't experience God or experience any passion in worship. But when that happens, it shows that something is wrong with us, as I'm going to show a little bit later. But you and I were wired for worship regardless of what you think about worship or what you experience in worship. We were wired for worship. And one of the reasons I know that is because I even see people who would have no emotion in worship service, but at a football game or something, they'll go crazy. There's passion inside of us. Sometimes it isn't directed in the right place, but I remember a story I shared a few years ago, but I'll share it again now just because I want to. And uh, I'm in charge of what gets preached here today, so you'll just have to listen. But when we were back in Korea, so I shared this a few years ago, but when we were in Korea, uh, first year of marriage, me and Ladon, 15 years married now. And, uh, and so we spent our first year in Korea, and that was 2001, 2002. In 2002, the World Cup of Soccer, that's the world's biggest uh, sporting event, uh, came to Korea. It was hosted by Korea and Japan. And while we were there, the Korean team wasn't supposed to do anything. They're not like a powerhouse soccer team in the world. And so nobody expected them to get to the first round. But anyway, they started magically, like almost magically, winning game after game after game. They got to the first round. They went deep. They actually went all the way to the semifinals. They almost made it to the final. And the whole country just caught this, this World Cup 
fever, so much so that the church we went to, which was a church with literally hundreds of thousands, 800 and some thousand members when we were there, the pastor actually got up on a Sunday morning and said, the reason they're winning is because we're praying, keep praying, okay? <laughs> like, they really, they really got serious about this thing, and it was everywhere. But anyway, um, and, and, but one of the things that Asians like to do, we're not so much, I mean, we like groups, but we don't really, really like groups. Everything they do is about, you know, get as many people and squish them into as small a place as possible, and that's fun. And uh, whether it's a grocery store or, or whatever, just crazy stuff. But so one of the things they did is they, they set up all these, and I've talked about this before, but they set up these stadiums all around the city, or not stadiums, they set up these screens outside in various places in Seoul. I think they had 13 different locations. And uh, I actually found some, and people would go outside and, and watch these things. I, I just found some pictures. So I'll just throw up, if you could just throw those up there, Dave. There's one. There's actually about 2 million people in that picture there. Uh, that's what they estimate somewhere in there. If you just, just scroll through the rest there, this is another, uh, another one there. And literally just all over the city, they just packed in, everybody wearing red or some of them wearing white, but most everybody wearing red. And they just shut down roads and, and they just shut everything down. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I like that. And, um, and you can see them there along the roads and stuff. I couldn't find a, um, a picture of the park where, where LaDonna and I went to watch a couple of games on a screen. But anyway, it came to the quarterfinal against Italy. And, uh, and I went to, to the park that was uh, close to where our church was and it was easy for me to get to from where we were living. And I went to watch the quarterfinal game against Italy. And uh, again, the Koreans were like no chance. The, the Italians, they're a soccer powerhouse. And uh, there's no chance Koreans are not going to win this game and they're going to be out of the tournament. And sure enough, the game started. The Italians were totally outplaying them. Uh, just a few minutes into the game, the Italians scored. It was one nothing. Any of you who follows international soccer, you know these are low-scoring games. The Italians went up one nothing, and it looked actually like the Koreans no chance. And it went like this, went like this, went all through the half, one nothing. The Italians were outplaying them. Went through the second half. There's two minutes to go in regulation, and I'm standing in, in in this park, standing because there's no room even to sit. Okay, there are so many hundreds of thousands of people where I where I was. I was about a quarter of a mile probably from the screen. I was in the parking lot. I wasn't even, probably even technically almost in the park. They had these, these, this line of trees that went around, ringed the outside of the park next to this uh, highway, and there was people all up in the trees. And I'm standing there, just squished. There was no going to the bathroom, none of that. I mean, you just wouldn't be able to get there. And uh, so we're standing there, there's about two minutes to go, and it looks like the dream is over. And then with two minutes to go, uh, one of the Italians, ball bounces off in the penalty box, he falls down, a Korean kicks it in, and this thing goes in. And I'm telling you, it was, like, it was like an earthquake in that park. Again, just a sea of people. This roar erupts from this mass of humanity. Now, the thing you have to understand is, a month before this, I had never even hardly heard of a Korean soccer team. Like, I, I didn't follow Korean soccer. I didn't grow up watching Korean soccer, obviously. I couldn't have named for even one person a month before, or even two weeks before. I couldn't have told you anyone that was on that team. But in that moment, this Korean guy scored, and I just about lost my marbles with everybody else. <laughs> And people, there was, this, there was this moment of disbelief. First of all, like, it's just two minutes to go in the game. This game's over. There's a, there's a split second of disbelief. And then this entire crowd, it was like, a, like, a, like an organism, like this giant organism, just erupts. Bottle rockets, people throwing things out of apartment buildings, people screaming, crying. And I find, here's myself, a Canadian, with a, with a three sizes too small Korea fighting red t-shirt, just really, really tight. And I uh, couldn't find anything that was, that was long enough for me in that country. Um, but people are weeping and hugging each other. And I'm standing there, almost overcome with emotion myself, and I'm almost crying. What on earth is happening to me there? I'll tell you what's happening. 
We were biologically wired to worship. Now, we weren't biologically wired to worship soccer, okay? But what I was experiencing there was an echo. What is it inside our brains? What is it inside of us as humanity that wants to get together, watch something together, and then explode in praise, in joy, in really a kind of almost worship? What is it in us that makes us want to do that? And I'll tell you what it is. It's an echo. There's no way. You can't explain this through evolution. How did monkeys, you know, if you believe in evolution, how did monkeys evolve a desire to watch soccer in big groups like that and then cry and dance and hug each other? You can't explain it through natural causes. It's an echo. It's a clue to something bigger. Someone out there put something in us. And it's an echo, it's a taste of something that's going to be a thousand or a million times more than that on the day when God returns. You were biologically wired for that day. And your whole body and brain is wired in such a way that it is actually physically looking forward to it, even if you don't know it. That there's a day coming when you will be consumed with passion and you will explode with joy and you will worship him. And when we have little moments like that, maybe through sports or music or whatever, all we're, it's almost like little breadcrumbs that God has left for us. Clues that there's something out there bigger than ourselves that this is all leading up towards. We were wired for worship. Kind of reminds me of Jesus, Luke 19.40. Luke 19.40, uh, it's just a few days before he's going to be crucified. He enters into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and all the kids and thousands of people are, are worshiping him. Hosanna, and they're throwing palm branches down, and they're shouting, and the, the religious leaders are more, they're like, this isn't good. This is, this is weird. Uh, this is blasphemous. There's a whole bunch of things, and they told Jesus, stop these people from, from having this outburst of emotion. Stop these people from worshiping, and, I, and look what Jesus says. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones were cried. I love, David says in Psalm 96, all the earth needs to praise him. And Jesus says, if the earth doesn't praise him, this is how amazing he is, even the rocks will cry out. Now, the fact that even the rocks, this is how amazing God is, the fact that even the rocks would cry out in praise to him shows that worship is not about personality. Because if there's anything that has less personality than, than a rock, I don't know who that person is. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing... You say, I'm just not that kind of person. Well, no, no. And I get that there's different expressions. There's certain personalities will express more or whatever, right? Or more easily express. But this idea that I just don't express it because I'm not an expressive person. You aren't less expressive than a rock. But this is how amazing Jesus is. And this is what all of creation was wired towards and for. Is that even the rocks would cry out. If someone else isn't going to cry out, the rocks would. And the question is, Why? Why should all of creation cry out to God? And the answer is very, very simple, and yet maybe sometimes overlooked. Psalm 96, if we go back there, skipping ahead to verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Why do we worship God? Because he is so great. He is so great. You know, people ask questions about why do we worship. In fact, I answered one just this past week. Interesting enough, before I even started working on this message. And sometimes people ask the question, well, like, why does God demand worship? Like, is he just sort of this needy person up in heaven, and he just needs us people to encourage him? No. 
Does God love it when we worship him? Absolutely. But is, does he need our encouragement? Is he sort of this needy, neurotic God up in heaven? And, he, and if we don't encourage him today, he's going to have a down date? You think so? No. We don't worship God because he needs it. We also don't worship God because we have to. It's not just a discipline. It's not just spiritual. The reason we worship God is because he's so amazing, it's the only appropriate response to how amazing he is. The only thing, I, again, I can really do, how do we capture the word great? It's just sort of a, it's just a word. So you say, God is great. Okay, well, that's a bit of a cliche. How do we even do that? I think we have to draw analogies into this world. Again, I think much of, even my experience there during that game, this experience of being with a massive crowd of people, this experience of, you know, almost crying for joy and just, just, just cheering and, and going crazy, these different experiences we have in this world are all breadcrumbs and clues to something bigger about who God is. And so when I think of how great God is, I think of something else I've talked about in messages before, but a few years ago, LaDonna and I had a chance to go to the Grand Canyon for a few days. And absolutely stunning. It was one of those few experiences in life where you go somewhere and you're looking forward to it, and then it's even better than what you were hoping it would be. And so we went to the Grand Canyon, and, uh, and, and we got there, and we drove the, the, the rental car in, and we got to the car when we first saw it, and and like all the pictures, I'd seen hundreds and hundreds of pictures in my life. Of course, we all have. It's a very famous place. But all the pictures you see, you just don't do justice to when you're there. The scale of it. I mean, 7,000 feet down in some places from top to bottom. I mean, you look down, just the scale, you just lose all, it just, it, it, you look down from the top, you look down at that river in the bottom, you're looking at a different climate zone. It's just, you're looking down into it. It's 15 degrees hotter down there. If you're there in winter, you got snow all around you, and you're looking down at summer in the bottom. You watch these eagles and vultures soaring in a canyon. They might be two, 3,000 feet up off the ground themselves, and they're 2,000 feet below you. And so just the scale of it and the colors, absolutely stunning. So we stand there together, and the only appropriate response, you stand there literally, I stood there awestruck. Awestruck. And we just spent a few days, and the feeling didn't even go away. Just We went down in there. We hiked different trails. We went all along the top. And for a few days, I, it just every time I saw it, in fact, I almost had it. One day, we took the rental car, and we were driving to a different place further down the canyon. We are going to take a little rafting trip. And while we were driving, LaDon said, would you please look at the road? Because I just kept looking like this at the canyon. I was so blown away. Uh, not, a, not a safe thing. But just absolutely awestruck. And so when we talked about it, even when I talk about it now, I, as I talk about it, there's a feeling of awe. And so when I, now, when I talk about it and I tell people that it was beautiful, do I tell people it's beautiful because I need the Grand Canyon to feel better about itself? You know, the Grand Canyon is really beautiful and the Grand Canyon goes, oh, that's so nice. No. Do I tell people the Grand Canyon is beautiful because I have to? Is it like a discipline? Well, now I've been there and I have to tell everybody it's beautiful. Check it off my list. I've done it 10 times this year or whatever, right? No. The reason I, when I talk about it, I talk about it as being beautiful is a couple of things happen. First of all, that kind of that kind of a place, that kind of beauty, the only appropriate response is awe. And then there's something. Now, I can keep that awe inside of me. I can try to keep it inside of me. Imagine if I would have gone there by myself. It wouldn't have been nearly as good. It wouldn't have been nearly as good. Because there's something. I go there with another person. There's something in the speaking about it. There's something in the sharing of that experience together to speak it out loud, to describe it, to talk about it, that actually is kind of almost the consummation of that, that experience of awe, that experience of beauty is somehow consummated in the speaking about it, in the speaking it out loud, and that's what worship is. 
that we don't worship because God needs us to worship him in order to feel better. We don't worship him because we have to. It's just a spiritual discipline we have to do. We worship him because he's that amazing. Think about this. If the Grand Canyon, which is just something he made. I mean, to God, what is the Grand Canyon? It's a small tear in the surface of the earth. Like a very tiny one. Like if he wasn't God, from where he is, it would be very difficult to see. There's no way he's less great than this little tear in the earth's surface, which he made. There's no, there's no way he's less awe-inspiring. See, that, the Grand Canyon is a clue. How did I get this sense of awe? Again, you can't explain in terms of evolution from monkeys. How does a monkey evolve a sense of awe? How does a monkey evolve a sense of beauty? Where did that come from? It's a clue. Someone out there is beautiful. Someone out there is awe-inspiring. And so when I see this, I get a little clue to someone much bigger than I, much bigger than the canyon, who's going to someday make my experience at the canyon feel like nothing when I see him. He's not going to be less awe-inspiring. He's going to be much, 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 much more. And so worship isn't me telling him something so he feels good. Worship isn't me doing something because I have to. We worship because he is that amazing. If I went to the Grand Canyon and just went, hmm, it wouldn't show something was wrong with the canyon. It would show that there was something wrong with me. It would show that there's something wrong with me. What is the matter with you that you don't know awe and beauty when you see it? If I don't worship God, it shows that there's something wrong with me, not with him. And so when I worship, now the other thing is, I can't just be silent. I can't just go to the canyon by myself and just be silent. Somehow, seeing it and being there, but to be there by myself and to be silent about it would actually make the experience far less. Isn't that true? I mean, those of you who have ever shared an experience with something, isn't, isn't the, it, somehow it's in the expressing of that experience with others. There's something about the expression, the speaking aloud of the experience that brings the experience almost to its culmination, that, that really brings it out. And it's the same with worship. We can't just look at God and just go, hmm. Somehow it's in the speaking of it, the writing it, whether it's in our devotions or whether we're with people corporately at church, it's in the speaking of it, it's in the singing of it, it's in the describing his glory and speaking it out loud and being together and talking about him. Somehow that experience of worship brings together this culmination of our experience of how great he is. So sing to the Lord all the earth because he is, he is great. He is great. Again, if I don't bubble over with worship towards God, it shows that something is wrong with me. If I get away from the canyon analogy, imagine that you were um, in a car, you were in a car accident, maybe on a bridge or a cliff or something, you're dangling over the edge, and someone comes along, some stranger comes along and, and rescues you, and he keep, climbs in there, injures himself badly, rescues you and, and your kids or your kid or whoever else is with you. At the end of getting out of that car, you would feel thankful and you would want to say thank you. You wouldn't just want to keep that thanks inside, you would want to say thank you. Why? Because that is the only appropriate response to what this person did for you. You wouldn't do it because you have to. You wouldn't do it just to make that person feel better, although you would hope they would be encouraged, but you would do it because it's the only appropriate response. Now again, I think of God. He saw us heading towards eternity in hell, dead in our sins, and he sent his son to actually die to rescue us in addition to millions of other things he's done for us, in addition to being so great he's also rescued us, the only appropriate response to that is worship. The only appropriate response. Now, what could be wrong with us in keeping our hearts from worship? 
And there's a number of things we could talk about. Um, why is it so, because some of you are thinking now, right now, well, I don't feel worshipful. I don't feel grateful. So what's going on inside of me then? Like, what's the matter with me? Because if I'm at the Grand Canyon, I go there, I see it's awe-inspiring, but I don't have those feelings towards God. What could keep us from worshiping God? There's a number of things. I just want to talk about one here today. One big one that keeps us from worshiping is just a distracted life. It's just a distracted life. A distracted life. If I never go to the Grand Canyon, if I only see pictures of it, you know what? You won't have a sense of awe from the pictures. The pictures will just give you kind of a snapshot, and I can see that that must be a beautiful place. But unless I go there, I'm not captured with awe. And it's the same with God. If I only ever hear people talk about God, it's like a snapshot, I can go, oh, he must be good. In a theoretical sense, he's good. In a theoretical sense, he must be loving. In a theoretical sense, he must be awe-inspiring and holy and sovereign and all those sorts of things. But if I don't actually meet with him and get to know him myself, then I can't be captured by a sense of awe. In other words, going to the Grand Canyon is a prerequisite for being filled with a sense of awe at the Grand Canyon. And the same is true of God. I actually have to meet God. I actually have to go and be with him and spend time with him and have a relationship with him in order to have awe. If I don't ever meet with him or know him, everything else is just fake. It's just theoretical. I'm worshiping an idea, but I don't know him. But if I get to know him, see, sometimes people try to work up feelings for God. Don't bother trying to work up feelings for God. That's not what this message is about, working up feelings of worship. The feelings will automatically come if you meet him. They'll automatically come if you... When we're in heaven, you won't have to work up passion. Boy, I just don't feel like worshiping God today. Once Jesus is on the earth, working up passion for God, out the window. He's that amazing. I didn't have to work up feelings. I didn't go to the Grand Canyon with LaDon and stand there and go, okay, i got to really discipline myself. I need to feel more passionate about this. I looked over there and I'm like, Whoa! The same with God. He will take your breath away. Don't worry about working up your emotions. Just seek him. When you seek him, you will find him. When you find him, you will know him. When you know him, you will love him. Amen. He's far better than anything else in this universe. Amen. He's far better than anything else he's made. And so he's left clues to us. Now, of course, again, the difference between God and the Grand Canyon is I can't, you know, the Grand Canyon, I can spend some money, I can, uh, you know, go stay in a hotel, and I can go over there, drive there, fly there, and I can go see it. The difference with God is he's partially hidden himself until he returns. He's partially hidden himself because he's testing our hearts. And he's testing our hearts to see who is it that really wants to find me? Who is it that really wants to know me? Who is it that really is a seeker after truth? And so he's partially hidden himself. Someday he won't be hidden anymore at all. But in the meantime, he's partially hidden himself. And unlike the Grand Canyon, I can't just fly somewhere and go and see him and be blown away by him. I have to seek him over time. I can't just have, there's no, until Jesus comes back and I see him face to face, there's no one moment when I can just say, oh, I've seen God and that was awesome. There is a day coming when we will see him fully. But in the meantime, he's testing our hearts. And so that's the difference between him and the Grand Canyon or some other things that we can see that are his handiwork, but they're not him, is that he wants to see, will we really bear down and seek after him? Do we actually care to know him? Are we seekers of truth? Are we lovers of the good? And so the enemy of knowing him then is this, this, these distractions. We 
there's so many good things in life, so much stuff to read, so many things to text, so many bills to pay, so much exercise to do, so many sports to be involved in. And so none of these things are bad in and of themselves. They're all perfectly fine things, but it just adds up and adds up and adds up and adds up and adds up, and eventually you have a life that is full of all good things, and you've missed the one thing that really matters. It's a distracted life. And just like if I never go to the Grand Canyon and gaze at it and look at it and hike down into it, I can't be blown away by it. If I never quiet myself, I don't, I don't care. See, again, some people think, well, there's certain people, they're just sort of wired for devotions. I'm not really that kind of person. I'm more wired to just worship God, you know, throughout the day. Well, that's great. And we should all worship God with our whole lives. But this idea that I can just go through my life and I don't really need to have devotions or ever quiet myself or spend time in the Word or pray. And, and again, different people call to different things, different people wired different ways, absolutely. But if you never invest the time to actually just sit quietly, to just get your mind out of the hum of all everyday life that just blurs through our minds constantly, if you never take the time to get out of that stream of busyness and distraction and just put your mind and your heart on the one who really matters and to worship him and to listen to him and to read his word, if we never do that, it's no wonder when we get together for worship, there's nothing in there. If I get together with some of you and you've never been to the Grand Canyon, we talk about the Grand Canyon, you're, you're not going to have much emotionally to share in that, dis- in that discussion. And if we get together as a church to worship and to love Jesus, because the Bible tells us we should, but we haven't met with Jesus, of course. Of course there's nothing there. And so at a certain point, some of us have been standing and playing in the shallows with God for years and years. And at some point, something needs to rise up inside of us and say, this will become a priority. I am going to seek God. And yes, I've got a hundred good things on my list, but he is the pearl of great price. Right, Matthew? Jesus said this in Matthew. He said, uh, the kingdom of God, I wish I, I should have put it in here. The kingdom of God is like a merchant who finds a pearl huge pearl, and he sells all that he has in order to keep that pearl of great price. That's what God is like. He's a pearl of great price. When you actually find him, you realize he's far better than anything you can have on this earth because he's made everything. And when you find him, now by selling everything, Jesus doesn't mean live in a cardboard box, you're not allowed to own anything, you're not allowed to own a car, you're not allowed to own a TV, you're not allowed to own a house. He, he means it's as if you sold all that stuff and didn't even have it. Nothing's going to get in between you and worshiping and knowing him. We worship him because he is great. Well, I want to look at the second half of that verse there, verse 4. We worship him because he is great and greatly to be praised, but he is also to be feared above all gods. He is also to be feared above all gods. God is good and wonderful and great, yes. But he is also to be feared. When we talk about God being wonderful and good and amazing and full of joy and loving, he is all those things. But he's not good and wonderful in the same sense that your buddy down the street who you watch a football game with or a hockey game with, he's that, because that guy's a good guy. Sometimes he uses the same words, right? He's a great guy. Or 
Some of you ladies, you got a girlfriend at work who just listens to you and just, you know, empathizes with you and feels with you, unlike your husband, and she does all those things with you, right? So, um, and so you just think, she's just such a wonderful person. And so we talk about, you know, this great guy or this wonderful girlfriend you have at work or whatever, and sometimes I think we almost might get that mixed up with God. We talk about God being so good and so wonderful um, but God, when we say God is good and wonderful, we don't mean in the same sense that he's like your buddy that you watch a football game with or that he's like, just like your girlfriend or something like that. He is good and wonderful, but he is much more than that. He is to be feared. And if he wasn't to be feared, he wouldn't be worthy of worship. So your buddy that you whatever do, whatever stuff you do with your buddies with, he might, those might be great guys, but you don't worship them. You don't want to worship them. Your girlfriend at work who listens to you, she might be super nice and wonderful, but she's not worthy of worship, and you don't want to worship her. If God was only good and wonderful and not also to be feared, he would not be worthy of worship. It's because he's both sets of traits that he's worthy of worship. He is full of joy. He is compassionate. He is full of loving kindness. He is wonderful and long-suffering. He's all those things. And when we meet him, he, like every good thing is ultimately from him. Every single good thing. I mean, when you laugh, when you hear a funny joke and you laugh, you are, that is ultimately something he invented. He invented humor. That came, that was out of his mind. He didn't need to create us with the ability to laugh, but he did because he loves to laugh. And when we're with him in eternity, we will laugh like never before. So yes, is he all these good things? Is God full of laughter? Yes. Is he good and is he wonderful? Yes. But he is also terrifying in his awesomeness. He is holy. He is sovereign. And it's only because he is all of those traits together. It's in the combination of all of those traits together that we have someone who is worthy of worship. He is to be feared above all gods. Look at verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. How many of you knew that trembling was a form of worship? To tremble, to respect God, to fear Him is a form of worship. The whole earth is to tremble. Now, we have a hard time in our culture. We like this set of traits, but we don't like this set of traits. The fear and the holiness and the sovereignty. We, we more like the comfortable Grandpa Santa Claus God. We don't like when He's mixed with holy, awesome, terrifying, and all those sovereign and holy and amazing, right? So we wonder in our culture how can He be both? How can he be wonderful and happy and loving and compassionate and holy and sovereign and awesome and terrifying all at once? Well, again, I just go back to the Grand Canyon. I mean, it's just a, it's just a small scratch. It's an analogy. When we went to the Grand Canyon, it was beautiful. It was amazing. It was all those sorts of things. But you look down off that edge and you don't play around on the edge. You don't play around on the edge of the Grand Canyon unless you're stupid. Because it's terrifying. At the same moment that it's awe-inspiring and beautiful, it's also terrifying. And somehow, the two go hand-to-hand. In fact, it's the very things that make it beautiful that also make it terrifying. And the same is true of God. We are not to fear God in the, same, in the sense that he's an angry father that we're afraid he's going to abuse us. He would never do that. But at the same time, you certainly don't play around the edges, carnally, or casually, because he is a holy God. And my fear in our Christian culture right now is that many of our churches here in the West have camped out 
on this set of traits. Many, many churches, not a few, many churches have camped out on these ones. God is compassionate, God is loving, God is wonderful, God is accepting, God is tolerant, he's all these sorts of things, and he is good. We affirm with them that he is good. But when you take out holiness and judgment and fear, you are actually left with a false god. You're left with a false god. And they have forgotten that God is also going to judge the earth, which is part of what we worship him for. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. One of the reasons God is worthy of worship, this is all tied in with worship. One of the reasons why God is worthy of worship is because someday he's going to come back and judge. I'm going to tell you something. The fact that God is a judge puts him in direct opposition with the picture of God that many churches in our culture have painted today. Who say that he's just okay with anything. His grace covers everything. Amen, his grace covers everything. If you repent and turn to him to be saved from your sins. But it's not. He he would not be worthy of worship if he just said, anything goes, I just accept you. Then he would be Santa Claus. He'd be your nice grandpa on a rocking chair welcoming us all into heaven. And that's not what the Bible says. That might be what the culture says. That might be what some Christians say. That might be what some churches teach. But it's not what the Bible says. And can I just... Just take a time out here for just a moment. If there was ever a time for us to be soaked in this constantly, it's now. It is now. Never has there been pressure. Well, I shouldn't say never. But there is pressure now in all kinds of things to say, what to, let's move away from historic Christianity. Let's move towards this. Let's move towards that. And it's only when you read this over and over and over again, you say, I'm going to have the picture of God that he wrote in his word, not the picture the culture tells me I need to have. He is to be feared above all gods. He will judge the nations. He will judge the nations. And of course, this doesn't mean we hate people who disobey God's law. Absolutely not. None of us. We all hate each other then. We all have to hate each other. And Jesus teaches us to love our enemies and turn the other cheek. Amen. But the fact that God is a judge means that clothed with love and respect in all of our words and behavior, we must uncompromisingly stand on this word and say, this is who God is. And he will judge the people. And if we go back to verse 4, we see that part of our worship is to fear God more than anyone or anything else. If we go back to verse 4, we looked at this already before, but for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And that's an interesting one. Part of our worship is to fear God above all gods. Okay? Many Christians today, when we talk about worship, when we talk about idols, we talk about an idol is anything you love more than God. Well, I mean, technically, I guess that's probably true. But the Bible talks about another kind of idolatry far more than loving something more than God. The Bible talks about idolatry mostly, if you go throughout Scripture, when the Bible talks about idolatry, it mostly talks about one thing, fearing something more than you fear God. Anything you fear more than God is something that is an idol for you. See, it's easy. When it comes to the loved one, it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. He's the top of my life, all sort of stuff. And then I can do whatever I want over here. But when it says that you have to fear God above all other gods, anything or anyone, that boyfriend or girlfriend in your life that makes you compromise and do stuff that you shouldn't do, if you compromise and do those things 
when you know you shouldn't do them, it's because you fear them more than you fear God. And if you fear them more than you fear God, that boyfriend or girlfriend is an idol. If your family, sometimes the most painful one is your family, if your family pressures you and you do do things or go along with things that you know go against God's word and go against what God has planned for your life, then that means you fear your family more than you fear God. You might say, yeah, but I love Jesus. So it's, it's, I don't have an idol because I love Jesus. No, no, but you fear them more than you fear him. That's an idol. And anything, so whatever it is, whether it's a boss, the fear of a loss of a job or whatever, anything that makes you go away from the picture of God we have here and the plan of God for your life that we see here, anything that makes you bow because you're afraid instead of bowing to God is an idol. Fear God above all other gods. Fearing God is an important part of worshiping him. And again, we do not mean by fear, I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid he's an abusive father. It means like the Grand Canyon, I'm not going to carnally play along the edge. I'm not going to play with compromise. I'm not going to play with sin. Because I actually fear him. And the more you know him, and the more you seek him in his word, the more, this is, you want to know food, this culture will not feed your fear of God. It'll, feel, it'll feed the opposite thing. It's in this word. This is the most important thing for growing in the fear of God is to be in this regularly and to meditate on the picture of God you see in here that is awe-inspiring, sovereign, and holy. And as that all comes up, when you see the Grand Canyon, you don't, you're not even tempted to play on the edges. When you start to actually meet God slowly but surely over the course of time, a revelation of him dawns on your heart and you no longer have any desire to play around the edges because you know that someday he is coming to judge all the people's of the earth. And when you take the fear of God out of the church, what you are left with is man-centered religion instead of God-centered worship. When you take the fear of God out of the church, you can take a church and have them focus on love, 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 love. But if with the love they don't focus on God is holy and sovereign, what you will end up with is man-centered religion instead of God-centered worship. What you'll end up with is churches that are obsessed with social justice and loving people and their whole goal is to make people feel good instead of worship God. And I am not against social justice. We're not against doing good deeds. I would challenge any church to find, like, our church, we're into it. We've put millions of dollars over the last number of years into all kinds of loving people, whether it be in Africa or Four Winds and all the stuff we do here, Thanksgiving Food and Clothing Drive. We believe in loving people. But if the message of the church becomes social justice, social justice, love, 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 care, and there's no focus on the holiness and the sovereignty of God, we've moved away from the picture that we have in here, and I think it's even possible to make love itself an idol. I want you to notice in this passage that it does not anywhere say worship God because he is loving. But it does say worship him because he's holy. Now, I can just see someone going out to the coffee shops this week. Chris says don't worship God because he's loving. If you do that, you are lying, okay? Just so you know. Now go out and do it, but at least know that you're lying, okay? I'm not saying God's love isn't an important core part of his identity or that we shouldn't worship him for him. I'm just saying that's not what we see worshipped here in Psalm 96. And actually, if you go throughout all the Psalms, you will not find Psalms that talk about worship God because he's loving. You will find worship him for various loving characteristics, but the most thing that you will find worship God for is his holiness. And in Revelation, the creatures and the saints in heaven at the throne room of God, do they say, love, 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 and then start worshiping? No, every single song starts with holy, holy, holy. Now, I'm not trying to make the opposite mistake and put God's holiness above his love, but what I am trying to say is our culture has elevated love above his holiness, and those two things are both core, and you can't take them apart. 
And if you put love above holiness, you'll actually make an idol out of love itself. We worship God, we do not worship love. As we worship God, we take him in all of his holiness, love and holiness and everything that he is. And out of that actually comes true love because the fact of the matter is, when you focus on love and to the exclusion of his holiness, you actually aren't loving people. And you want to know why that is? I'm going to finish the message here. Why is it that actually in order to really love people, we can't let go of the fact that God is holy? I'll tell you why. Because God's holiness is the foundation of our happiness. Did you know that? See, a lot of people think that God's love is the foundation of our, holiness, or of our happiness. It is. But just as much of a foundation for our happiness is not God's love. If God was only love and not holy, we actually would miss out on happiness. See, we, we equate love with happiness. Holiness, this is the condemnation part. We think because we've been so messed up by our culture, we, we, we equate God's holiness with all kinds of negative characteristics. When we think of holiness, we think of anger, condemnation, all these sorts of things. Absolutely not. God's holiness is the source along with love and the foundation for our happiness. You say, how you, can you say that? Well, I'm going to read you the last few verses of this chapter in just a moment. But God's holiness is our happiness. And let me, let me give you an analogy. When I go, uh, when our van runs out of gas, I go to the gas station, I put in gas, okay? Because my van's engine was made to run on gas. If I put anything other than gas into that engine, it won't run well. In fact, it'll probably break down and not work at all and be just broken and expensive to fix, okay? Now, that's obvious, right? Of course, you gotta put gas in, it's made for gas, okay? Now, do I put gas in? Is that like a, is that like, do I feel really bad about that? Like, every time I go to the gas station, I go, oh, I feel so condemned, i got to put gas in here. Like, I just feel, this is so bad. I feel so bad about myself. I feel so bad about, like, like the, the, the Toyota, the company that made this van. Like, they just condemn me. That's why I have to put gas in here. No. I don't feel bad at all, other than paying for it, maybe. Um, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but I just do it because I know they made the van. They know how it runs. This is how it runs. God made you, he knows you inside and out, and he knows how you run. Amen. And he knows that you don't run. If you try to run on sin, you will bring death and destruction to your life, even if you have a short-term pleasure, even if everybody else in the culture tells you that what you're doing is okay, and they convince you that what you're doing is okay, if you do something that you were not made for that God calls sin, ultimately it will end in your misery, I can guarantee it. Even if you can get five months or six months or six years or ten years of pleasure out of a sin, ultimately, I guarantee you, it will end in misery because you weren't made to run that way. All holiness is, is following God's commands for how you were made. It's not about condemnation and judgment. His holiness. So if you want to, if you want to reap a harvest of happiness, in the long run. Here's the problem. Our sinful nature lies to us. It has deceived us. And too many of us are enslaved to it. And it tells us that the only way to happiness is not through holiness. And holiness is just kill joy. And because we believe that lie, we just follow this path. And we maybe find some short-term pleasures, but 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, sometimes even much quicker, we find ourselves miserable and broken and we don't know why. It's because you weren't made to run on that junk but if you want to make an investment in your happiness, you will never be as happy as you are when you live holy. 
by the Spirit of God, as we live more and more righteous in accordance with his commands, he hasn't given us those commands as just random things to make us feel better or bad. He's given them to us to show us how to live. And when we live that way, we will be happy like we've never been happy before. When we worship him and fear him and obey him, that is the source of happiness and contentment and satisfaction in the universe. And someday when he comes back and we all live holy, we'll never be more happy than on that day. His holiness is actually the foundation for our happiness, which is why it isn't bad for us to preach God's holiness. It's the most loving thing we can do, even if our culture tells us it's hateful. If we finish this chapter, verse 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So again, notice, it does not say worship him in the splendor of his love. Absolutely, we should worship him for his love, and that's in many other passages. But in the Psalms, we see a focus on his holiness, and look at what comes out of it. If we just skip verse 10, let the heavens be glad. Look at all the gladness here. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. We're singing for joy because he judges? Yes, because his holiness is the foundation for our happiness. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Look at all the happy language there. Out of his holiness comes gladness, rejoicing, exulting, and singing. God's holiness is the foundation of our happiness. Let me leave you with a challenge for this week, a little challenge for this summer while we're going through this little series. This week, I would challenge you to read a psalm every day this week. Wherever you are in your Bible reading, I would just challenge you, just take a psalm, maybe not Psalm 119, because that's going to take you a long, long time. <laughs> but work your way maybe from the beginning or whatever, but just take one psalm and just read a psalm and allow that to inspire you to worship God for who he is and to see him as he really is. Sometimes we have a, a bad picture because of what our culture tells us. And then I would challenge you to do this. Before you do anything else in your devos, read a psalm, then spend just 20 minutes. Spend 20 minutes worshiping him, okay? Before you ask him anything, before you worry about anything, we usually rush to asking him for stuff. You know what? Just worship him. You were made for worship. And you will never be as satisfied or fulfilled or as happy in your life as when you are living holy and worshiping him. You were made for worship. And there's almost nothing more important you can do than to spend time day after day and to worship him, to know him, to love him. And, uh, and then we'll move on in this series. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a final song of worship. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, may we never be swayed from the words that you have left us of who you are. I pray, Father, that you would fill us with joy at your loving kindness and goodness and also feel, fill us with a sense of fear and awe at your holiness and sovereignty and majesty. I pray that here at Self and by the power of your spirit, you would bring all of those traits together into one and springing out of that would come true worship, joyous, glad worship from our hearts. Empower us by your spirit to live holy and to love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Self and Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.